Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Jessica Peters of Southington was 29 years old when she died last October. Her mother, Amy Johnson, says her daughter struggled for many years with substance abuse. Coming up, Johnson joins us to talk about their relationship and to share the signs she says she missed about her daughter's addiction. We'll also explore what doctors are doing to combat painkiller addiction. Some would say medical professionals have responded too slowly to the opioid epidemic, but in Southern California, efforts began to reduce the overprescribing of painkillers back in 2009. Coming up, a writer for The Atlantic will join us to talk about an innovative program at HMO Kaiser Permanente. But first, substance abuse among teens is a problem in many countries. Officials in Iceland noticed teen drinking was getting out of control, so they hired an American researcher to help reduce the problem. Joining us by Skype from Iceland now is Harvey Milkman, professor of psychology at Metropolitan State University of Denver, also visiting professor at Reykjavik University. Professor Milkman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Nice to be here. I understand you've been researching addiction for many years. Tell us what you discovered when you studied why people uh, choose between heroin or amphetamines. Well, we were able to give people their chosen drug, and um, we gave the amphetamine users amphetamine, and heroin users were able to give them morphine. And we discovered that when they were high, um, they became more active, uh, which was understandable, and with uh, amphetamine and more sedated with heroin. But we discovered that their personalities conformed to that. So they, uh, people were, the drug of choice was consistent with their characteristic way of reducing stress. Heroin addicts, they wanted to slow down, shut down stimulation, put the food under the door, you know, don't, don't make any sound. When they were under stress, amphetamine users wanted to speed up things. They wanted to become active and confrontational in their environment. So we were the first ones to really discover distinct personality types uh, with drugs of choice. And, that, and now that we have the current research supports that. I mean, even rats who are sensation-seeking, novelty-seeking rats prefer amphetamine versus other rats who don't prefer that. So, um, and it's also been validated in other studies. So. I realized that people were not so much getting addicted to drugs, but getting addicted to their style of coping with stress. And that led to the idea that uh, the brain is, we know that the brain is a giant pharmaceutical factory that makes its own chemicals. So people were getting high on changing their brain chemistry and that opened up the whole door to behavioral uh, problems like crime and gambling and sex addictions and so on. They're using these substances because they became addicted to the feeling that that substance, that they, they were using the substance, but the feeling that they felt was something that was happening in their brain. Their brain was changing because of that addiction. Right. And, it, and if it weren't uh, the drug, it could be something else. So people who were, let's say, uh, prone to use stimulant drugs, they could be um, really committing crimes to enjoy the rush of the crime, or they could be doing risk-taking activity, other risk-taking activities, promiscuous sex, and so on. So it was the feeling that they became addicted to, and it was the drug was really the supporting actor. So the drug, the, the feeling is the protagonist. The drugs or activities are just the supporting actors in this drama of addiction. 
And that influenced you to think about natural highs. If people were to um, use, recreate more um, and not be using substances, that maybe they could use that as a stimulation. Um, and then how did you move forward on researching that? Exactly. Well, once you realize that the brain produces its own mind-altering chemicals, which are much more gentle and, and responsible in terms of changing mood states, then we started to think that uh, why not promote a social movement called Natural Highs? And, um, and then uh, I wrote a grant for, that was funded with a uh, legendary African-American dance choreographer, Cleo Parker Robinson in Denver. And we were funded for $1.2 million to start a natural highs laboratory, giving teenagers uh, natural high alternatives to drugs and crime. So we offered them whatever they wanted, art, music, dance, poetry, adventure-based activities, along with a life skills curriculum that gave them uh, responsible ways of interpreting their environment so they could learn how to be mindful and structure their thoughts around uh, responsible living. And we did that for 10 years, and we had another uh, million dollars that was provided by the, the Center for Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. And along that time, we started having conversations with the Icelanders, and they were also thinking along these lines of natural highs. And that's how the Iceland uh, connection came about, was this conversation about giving people better than dope, better things to do with, with their time. And that, that's how the thing got, that's how I got connected with Iceland was through a series of talks that I gave in Iceland. And what was happening among uh, Iceland's teenage population at that time um, with the use of substances? How bad was it? Well, it was really bad. I mean, if you were on a Friday night walking the streets of Reykjavik, it was like hordes of drunk teenagers and it felt dangerous and they were boisterous and loud and sometimes lewd in their comments and um, and uh, then you look at the data they were within the in the 30-day period of time 42 percent of the 16 year olds were getting drunk and uh, smoking cigarettes they were daily smoking was 23 percent of the population cannabis use 17 percent of the kids had used uh, cannabis in the past year and that was kind of the little bit of the broad uh, look at what was happening in, in Reykjavik in 1997-98 this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Harvey Milkman. He's an American professor who teaches for part of the year at Reykjavik University in Iceland. We're speaking to him via Skype um, from Iceland. And you were able to then go to Iceland, help them develop uh, programs to retrain kids, the idea of just giving them better things to do instead of uh, you know, drinking excessively. How quickly did that idea um, become accepted in Iceland? And how did they go about seeing drastic reductions? Well, I mean, it's been a 20-year uh, evolution of this process, and, and really, um, it's a lot bigger than just giving them, uh, you know, structured activities. So the whole country is involved in a collaborative uh, effort. So the politicians, the researchers, the, the um, practitioners all got together and decided we're going to do something about this, so they, they kind of joined forces. And so now we have a um, an understanding that it's about spending time with your kids. So the parents uh, have, it's by law required to have parent groups in the schools and they have information that really gets widely disseminated that it's not so only the quality of time you spend with the kids, but your quantity of time. So how many hours a day you're spending your kid, not, not whether you're taking the kid to a concert once a month or not. And then they have um, vouchers where every kid in Iceland, every family knows that they can, the government will support 
uh, adult supervised activities and they can they sign their kids up there about $250 per kid per family and they can uh, they sign their kids up for these kinds of adult supervised activities whatever the kid likes it could be sports it could be music it could be art dance and uh, also the corporate uh, uh, part part of the uh, the country is involved so there are is corporate support for media messages and for these voucher programs. So it's really a collaborative effort throughout the country that supports this. Professor Milkman, this all seems uh, a lot like common sense. Why haven't other countries, um, why haven't we seen something like this in the United States, for example, um, more so than just in a town or city? Well, I mean, you know, the ratio is like 1,000 to 1. So for every person in Iceland, there's 1,000 people in the state. So it's a little bit more difficult to organize some of this but I definitely think that the programs could be um, transferred to specific municipalities in the states. I mean, when the when the, when there is a, a a particular community that wants to do something like this, it should be done. And I think the problem is that there's a lot of competition for funds in the states, and so um, there really is not this widespread collaboration that we see. And um, uh, the I think the magic of the Icelandic program is they they don't have a generic model. It's it's community by community, even in Iceland, which is only 323,000 people in the whole country. But they have a community uh, analysis of what through surveys they study each community and what kinds of problems are the kids encountering within that community, and then they talk to the community about what kind of resources that they have specifically in that community. And that's something that definitely could be done and should be done. Uh, within the United States. So it's not like a, a you know, a, a kind of one-size-fits-all model. It's really what does your community experience in terms of problems? I mean, in one community, it might be opioids or methamphetamine. Another one, it might be marijuana. Another community might be excessive drinking. And then what kind of resources do you have in that community to deal with these kinds of problems? And the community has agency in deciding what they want to do. And then through the survey data, they can really specifically target areas, problem areas, and then they come up with a resolve of how to deal with it. And that's been the secret of the Icelandic model is a community-based approach. Funding streams are certainly a challenge uh, these days. Uh, Professor Milkman, you've spent time also studying and and working in the U.S. Uh, It always seems that the emphasis these days with the opioid epidemic is treatment, treatment, treatment. But there needs to be, do you feel like there needs to be a change in just thinking of, of thinking more about the prevention side to, to keep kids from even picking up that drink or using that substance. Right. And this is a primary prevention model. And really, you have to think long term about it. And so, uh, you know, the kids that are 10 years old now, in, in five years, they're going to be you know, ripe for taking drugs. So if you're thinking long term, you offer these kids uh, healthy alternatives and they begin to form connections with responsible adult role models. I mean, even if they don't have healthy families, if you provide opportunities uh, for them to make connections with responsible adults that can lead them as mentors through these kinds of things that they enjoy anyway, then it becomes a workable model. And I think that's what Iceland has demonstrated. Well, I want to thank uh, Harvey Milkman, professor of psychology at Metropolitan State University of Denver, also visiting professor at Reykjavik University. He joined us via Skype from Iceland. A really fascinating uh, article and conversation about the work you're doing, Professor Milkman. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Lucy. I, I appreciate being here. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to learn how doctors in Southern California reduce the amount of opioid prescriptions given to their patients. Can that program be duplicated in other states? And later, a Connecticut woman shares her story of her daughter's battle with addiction. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Individuals struggling with opioid addiction are introduced to painkillers in a variety of ways. As the opioid epidemic has grown nationwide, medical professionals have become aware of the dangers of prescribing too many pills. In Southern California, doctors at healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente have instituted a large-scale effort to rethink pain management and prevent overprescribing painkillers. Joining us now to talk more about this effort is freelance writer and author Sam Quinones, who wrote a recent story about the program in The Atlantic. He's also author of the book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Sam, welcome to where we live. Thanks very much for having me on. You wrote that in 2009, doctors at Kaiser Permanente first began to rethink how drugs were being prescribed when they saw the data in front of them. They had gathered to review uh, which drugs were most prescribed. Tell us what they found. Well, they thought they were going to find drugs related to heart disease or hypertension and this kind of thing. In fact, they found uh, hydrocodone, an opiate painkiller, uh, was the mo- drug most prescribed. There were a couple others in the top 10. I think one of them was uh, OxyContin, which was a surprise as well because the HMO does not actually pay for uh, OxyContin. It's not on their their list of, uh, of approved drugs. So people were actually asking for it and doctors were prescribing it and people were paying for it out of their own pocket. Um, and all of this uh, was alarming to them because they had no idea, first of all, that this was was going on and also they began to hear stories after that of a lot of these pills leaking out into from prescriptions leaking out into the black market and being used at high schools at parties a variety of ways and and then people getting addicted to this and this was the the beginning of their awakening i think uh doctors at that that system of what this overprescribing was mm-hmm. was creating. So these drugs were leading the list. It wasn't just the, that, but the fact that there were so many pills being pres- prescribed at once. Exactly. This was. I was a Kaiser patient during that year, as a matter of fact, and I had my appendix out, and uh, they gave me a couple of Vicodin each day in the hospital, and then they sent me home with a bottle of sixty. Vicodin. This is for pain that was probably going to last another two days. In fact, lasted only another two or three days. And they gave me 30 days worth of opiate painkillers, Vicodin in this case. This is common practice, remains unfortunately, I think, common practice in many parts of the United States. But it's how you get to the results that they were seeing. It's a massive dosing because in America for the last 20 years, doctors have been convinced by pain specialists and pharmaceutical advertising and promotion that opiate painkillers are, quote, virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain. And that's just simply not true. Plus, it, it also led to the idea that um, it, then it didn't matter how, if these were virtually non-addictive, it didn't matter how many of these pills you prescribed at once. And hence, we've had an enormous supply slosh around in the country now of opiate painkillers from coast to coast, unprecedentedly huge, largely because of this very, very aggressive prescribing and then huge quantities of these pills being prescribed for a lot of minor surgeries and a variety of other things uh, to millions of Americans every year. These doctors were in a room in 2009. What happened next? First of all, what they did was they began to meet publicly with doctors from each area and discuss this and say, uh, we think this is a problem. We think pills have become a substitute for actual medicine. Doctors uh, are, are very under the gun. They're very harried doctors began to say, yes, we don't have time for more than this. They began to then rejigger their computer system to when, when a doctor is about to prescribe one of these, to have an alert come up to say, uh, this patient's already taking 
something else that might be a problem if you prescribe this or this person's already been on this or has some problem with this as a way of, of in the middle of the patient appointment giving a doctor some ammunition with which to say maybe I'm not going to prescribe all of this to you or this drug in particular right now maybe there's some other things for p chronic pain patients they expanded the amount of the other kinds of treatment that they give for chronic pain uh, acupuncture a variety of dietary ideas exercise things like this that can help people deal with their with their chronic pain and opiates are part of that but only a, a small part so it was kind of a rethinking of the entire way of dealing with pain and they did so technologically through their computer system personally meeting with the doctors uh, and, and sometimes having to meet more than once with a few doctors who maybe quite didn't quite get the message early on and also they began to deal with this uh, in surgeries you know say the kind of operation that I had they now would give 15 pills instead of 60, you know. And all of this is, is kind of common sense stuff. It's tough when you're in a big system like this, but over a period of time, you can accomplish it, and that's, I think, what they did. So five years into this initiative, uh, you reported that Kaiser's uh, Southern California operation saw the uh, prescriptions of opioids plunging. But talk about how um, doctors that work within the HMO Kaiser Permanente, how they're in a unique position to do this kind of rethinking with the resources available sure. as an HMO. I think HMOs actually are, are very well poised to do this because, first of all, they're large enough to affect a lot of doctors. So one HMO getting the idea to do this means a lot of doctors can potentially change. Plus, also, they have um, a lot of data to show, to, to see what, how things have been and then how they end up and, and whether or not these uh, approaches are working. So that kind of data gives them a pretty clear picture of what's going on and how things are changing. This isn't always the case in small clinics and in individual practices, of course. It's, it's, it's Doctors are very harried. All doctors are just extraordinarily overworked in America, it seems to me. And, and so you do need this kind of backup or this backstop to say, no, look, uh, this is what you're doing. We're going to try to help you to change, even though we know you're, you're under the gun. A lot of patients coming through all the time. So the HMO getting the picture and, and making moves like this is actually uh, more possible. And it also changes the attitude of a lot of doctors. It also, however, I think can be a model in a community or in a region or a county for how to do things a little bit differently. Maybe they can take the investment and then others who don't have the money to be doing this maybe can say, well, let's see if we can follow their lead and take what they did. So I think, I think HMOs can be, and, and, and I think many are now. I think I would say that Kaiser now is, is no longer alone. Uh, in this. It's, uh, a lot others I've, I've heard of are making shifts in this way, maybe not as dramatic as, as Kaiser has done. And what about the, the doctor-patient relationship? If a patient is really in pain, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic between the doctor and the patient and, and, sure. and patient um, and advocates? This usually has, exactly. This usually has to do with chronic pain patients who have very, very complicated pain problems. This is not an easy thing. This is not post-surgery. This is stuff that has mangled their lives for many of their years, could root, be rooted in an accident or, or something that happened years ago and just never went away, that kind of thing. And what's happened at Kaiser is, and they're, I'm not sure they're, they're getting it perfectly yet, but they're, they're kind of working towards that, I would say, it sounds like. They begin to, each patient, pain doc 
sits down with the patient and it becomes a relationship, perhaps more of a relationship than a patient has with the primary care physician. A relationship that talks about where, where they try certain things. If that doesn't work, they try something else. It's, it's something, though, that does not end uh, with an, a specific appointment. It goes, it's an ongoing thing. And I think pain patients like that because too often chronic pain patients have been sold a bill of goods, I think, by this whole pain management movement using opioids for so many years. And that is just throw pills at it, just douse it with dope. And um, talking with other pain patients, they always say it's, it's with us, it's either all or nothing. And what we want is a balance. We want this balance of a lot of strategies that we can access and opiates are part of that, but they are not by any means the, the only part of it. And I think what, that's kind of where Kaiser is, is groping. Again, they're, they're trying to figure this out. I think it's a fascinating uh, story because I'm not, not to say that they have all the answers. Everyone's trying to figure out what to do here. It's a new thing and people are trying to figure out how to best achieve this. And pain docs at, at, at Kaiser seem to be of the mind that if you sit down with people, treat them as a, you, you're forming an, a, a partnership here, a long-term partnership. You're not going to leave them in the lurch. You're going to be continuing to adjust and figure out that that over the long period of time is the best way to address this. Now, Sam, you also, in your uh, story for The Atlantic, uh, you you did write that doctors did have a hard time, even with all these tools and training and um, new computer software, they were still having a hard time saying no to some patients who were demanding these painkillers. Um, how course. have you seen have you seen that change? Well, that is a difficult thing to change, and I think they're little by little doing it. They, uh, I think the computer reprogramming helped so that in the middle of that appointment, when the patient is being insistent, up comes uh, studies, uh, the latest scientific studies that say this is what we've heard or this is what we've learned from, uh, you know, uh, about these pills in combination with, with whatever other pill you might be taking or with your background. There's, there's kind of uh, uh, studies to arm the doctor to say maybe this isn't the best way to go or we're going to try it a little bit, but then if it doesn't work, we're not going to up the dose anymore. We're going to just say, no, we're going to try something else. It, it seemed to me that re- reprogramming their computer system was, was an especially smart move because, as you say, in those appointments is where doctors are human. They're looking into a person's eye, and that person, truthfully or not, is protesting vigorously that he or she is in pain. And sometimes it's, it's a lie, but that's uh, doctor shopping. But... But either way, it's, it's hard to say no. Doctors want to help people. That's why they get into their jobs, you know. And so um, the, the computer system seemed to me to be a particularly interesting idea to say, it to, uh, you know, look, our, my computer's saying this. The, the, the policy is this. We're going to try something, but not everything that you want. And if it doesn't work, we're not, we're not going to up the dose anymore. I think that kind of helps. It helps the doctor in the middle of all that. Sam Quinones is a freelance writer and author. He wrote a recent story in The Atlantic called The California Doctors Who Found a Way to Quit Overprescribing Opioids. Quinones is also author of the book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Sam, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, a Connecticut mother shares the story of her daughter who lost her life after battling addiction. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This next interview includes content that may make some listeners uncomfortable, and it's not suitable for young children. 
The opioid epidemic in our region and country upends lives, and it's the family members of addicts who intimately know the deadly costs of substance abuse. Longtime Granby resident Amy Johnson knows firsthand the tragedy of addiction. Her daughter, Jessica Peters, struggled for years with heroin addiction before taking her life in October of 2016. Amy joins us now to tell us about her daughter, Jessica, and why she feels it's important to share her story. Amy, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Tell us about your daughter, Jessica. Jessica was the light of my life. She's my only child, and she was everything to me. Jessica, at two years old, used to see horses, and she said, Mommy, Mommy, I want to ride horses. I want to ride horses. And I never knew where that came from because I don't like them. <laughs> but at five, six years old, she began riding, and she rode all the way through until she was about 18 or 19 years old, um, almost daily. And then she started changing at about 19 or so. She lived for horses. So she had a passion for something for much of her life. Yes, yes. If she was passionate about something, she gave it her all, 100%. School, on the other hand, was something she was not passionate about. She never did well, and it wasn't because she wasn't smart. It was just because the subjects bored her. You said that things started to change around the time she was graduating from high school? Yeah, right around then, um, and then more so about a year or two later, things got really strange, and I almost felt like I don't know this person. What was going on in her life at that time when you started to notice her personality that, that was different? Well, she stopped hanging out with her friends that she had known since she was nine years old and was always together because they all went to college and she stayed here to go to the massage therapy school in Newington. And unfortunately, she um, she didn't do very well and that really set her, it set her back. It, it made her feel a loss of confidence mm-hmm. in herself. And somehow she she met a young lady um, from East Hartford, I, I won't mention uh, her name, and she ended up being a stripper at the age of 19. So it was a bad influence that led her on this path? I think so, but then again, I, knowing my daughter, I don't think she did anything that she didn't want to do. So she chose this. She she chose a different different life because she completely became someone else. She didn't even speak the same way. When did you find out that she was using drugs? Around age 21 years old, she met this wonderful man who as it turns out, is the father of her first child. And they had a very good relationship. But when she got pregnant, she moved home. And I said, why are you, why are you moving home, Jess? I'm like, 
Now, why don't you want to be with your boyfriend, father of your baby? And she said, well, I, mom, I've been doing drugs, and I think that the only way I can stop is if I have a child, because then I'll have somebody else to think of besides myself. That's hard for you to, to remember when she said that to you. It's really hard. Um, what did you tell her? I said, I, I had to quote Dr. Phil, <laughs> and I said, Jessica, you do not bring a child into the world with a job. You bring a child into the world because you want to give him or her the best life you possibly can. And she really didn't say anything. Uh, when your grandson was born, yeah. was she completely clean? No. No, she wasn't. Um, he was in the hospital for about three weeks um, and because they had to detox him with, um, I believe, morphine. And she was really upset about that because she had cut down so much so she was just so angry at the hospital people for putting him on the morphine when she really felt that he didn't need to be. She went back with your grandson's father. Yes. Things were going okay. She wasn't using anything illicit at the time. Honestly, I don't know. She had a very, very bad case of postpartum depression and never really came out of her room. Mm -hmm. So I basically raised him for those first three months. When did you find out that your daughter, Jessica, was abusing drugs again? Well, I, I, I've known for this whole time <clears throat> that she was abusing her drugs because she, she continued on the Subutex for all of these years. And she would run out of them really fast and so I just figured okay well she's in a lot of pain and you know maybe the doctor needs to increase the dose I, I was so oblivious and so what she would do I found out later is after she ran out of the subutex she was getting heroin she was selling it also and and she was sniffing it she had a new relationship but then that relationship soured she, she came back to you? Yeah, they were on and off. Um, he was very physically, emotionally, and mentally abusive to her. Not what she needed while she was battling addiction? No. She moved back in with me and the children. On December 11th, she went out. It was a Friday night. Her, her uh, husband um, would, had the kids every weekend. And so she was getting ready to go out, and I said, you know, when are you going to be back? And she said, don't worry, I'll be here when you wake up, when you wake up. And she never came back. And then I didn't hear from her again, oh, my goodness, until I think it was May. It was Mother's Day weekend. She ended up in the hospital because she had overdosed during that whole time that she was gone, um, she had met an older man and was living with him. And on Mother's Day weekend, she was begging her husband to see the kids. 
and he wouldn't let her. And she was just beside herself. She was so depressed. And that night she got up and she went down into the kitchen and she overdosed. And she actually was not living. They got her back to life. And so she was in the hospital for about a week and then she left AMA against medical advice um, because the family, we were so happy that we finally found her and we had everything set up for her to go to a detox and we didn't care if she was going to be there for a year or two years, whatever. We just wanted her to get healthy again and clean and sober. But that just wasn't her intention. And so she left the hospital. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Amy Johnson, a Connecticut mother who wanted to share her daughter's story of addiction. Her daughter Jessica died in October. How did you feel when, in a way, you found your daughter again? Mm-hmm. She had a, another chance at life when you understood the, the circumstances of what brought her to the hospital. What was going through your mind? You know, it was amazing and to see her, and I was so pleased. But then on the other hand, I knew we weren't done because she didn't act like somebody who wanted to get sober. Did you feel at that moment when she left against the advice of the hospital, the professionals at the hospital, um, against the, the fit wishes of you and the rest of her family, did you feel at that point that she was beyond help? No, I never felt she was beyond help, never. I just felt really sad, you know. I I was brokenhearted. I didn't know how to get through to her. I I the depression, it was it was as if she was a completely different person. And I would just pray and pray and pray and pray, you know, that she would call me and say, "Mom, okay, I'm ready." Um, but unfortunately, that didn't happen, and she overdosed again. I think it was like within a month or two. And this time, the boyfriend, um, he said, that's it. I'm, I'm done, <laughs> and, and threw her out. And she ended up living in this really horrible uh, place in Middletown um, right off the highway, and um, it turned out that the apartment everybody was using some form of drug Um, but that's when she called me and she started coming over my house every weekend and it was wonderful it was just amazing we she was using unfortunately still and we would make a plan that on Monday we would go to the um, ADRC. It's a detox. And then they also have, they have inpatient services. And so after you detox, if you choose, you go to the 30-day program and, you know, all inside. And so that was the plan. That's what, and that's what we were going to do. But somehow, whenever Monday came around, something would come up and she couldn't go or wouldn't go. But we were talking, you know, almost almost daily. You know, we were we were talking. Then after that, for a while, she moved in with my mother, 
and stayed there for about a month or two. And my mom commented how Jessie never came out of her room. And she just didn't want to bother her. And uh, But she just didn't understand why she never came out of her room. But then sometimes like at 11 or 12 at night, she would go out. And she never questioned her because she says, you know, she's an adult now and, you know, I'm not going to question her. So that lasted for about a month and a half or so. And then she got back together with her husband. But she still came to my house every weekend. Then one day my mother called me. I knew she was on drugs. I did not know she was on heroin. I missed so many clues and that's like that's one of the main reasons that I'm here is because of all the clues that I missed what happened was my mother cleaned out her room and when she went under the bed she found needles and all the paraphernalia and then she looked at the walls and she noticed there was spatters of blood on the walls so she still stayed with me every weekend and I know she was using but she kept it from me but during those weekends we we rebonded our our relationship it was better than ever did she know what she was doing to you yeah she knew she knew what she was doing she she planned to die she wanted to die and all those times that she spent with you on the weekends did she ever you told me that she suffered you know she's obviously depressed yeah um and she was angry yeah but did she ever tell you why she didn't want to take that next step and to go with you on monday to detox yes her fear was that she was going to have to deal with all the things that she had done first and foremost abandoning her first son that that was the main one um and she also was so embarrassed because she felt like the family that she let the family down even though she she's like I just I don't I don't belong I'm just not I'm not like you guys she'd always say and I just know that it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to ever love me again. They're never going to accept me again. And I said, Jesse, we love you. We all love you. You're just, you're a shining star. You know, you're a bright light. And um, she just, it didn't, it didn't seem to make a difference to her, you know. And this pattern went on until last October? It did. It went on and it went on and it went on. And then there was one weekend where she told me that she was hoping to get a bag of heroin with fentanyl in it so that she would just die. And I just started crying. And she was sitting on the couch in the living room, and I was standing up about five feet away. And I was like, Jesse, no. No, don't. Please, please, don't leave me. You can't leave me. And she didn't say anything. And she didn't look at me. And she just kept looking straight ahead. That was about a month before she died. It was in September. 
So I knew at that point she was on a mission. I just decided at that point that I was going to be grateful for every minute that we had together. You said at that moment you wanted to just appreciate the time you had with her. Yeah. At that moment, did you give up hope? I did. I did. I I just knew she was too far gone because her fear was that she felt so guilty. And she just, she's like, Mom, if I get clean, she's like, then I have to face it. And I have to deal with it. And I'm afraid. And I said, but Jess, I said, it's not like you're going to go through detox. And then the next day, they're going to say, okay, let's deal with all the things that you feel terrible about. And I said, it, it's going to be a process. It, it, it's going to take months, years. I said, but you go to therapy and you work through it. And she just said, I can't. I just know I can't. How did she die? She got some heroin that night. Um, it was October 13th. It was a Friday. And um, she was she was um, with her husband because, which was strange because, you know, she always came with me on the weekends. And she wanted to me to pick her up on Thursday that week. And the husband said, if you go, I'll never let you see the kids again and blah, 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 and all of those sorts of lies. Um, but in her condition, you know, she believed everything he said. Um, so she said, please don't come pick me up. Please don't come pick me up. So I didn't. And then Friday, um, the 13th, I wanted to go pick her up. And um, she said, no, he, he won't let me go. And... Um, Apparently, from what he told me, she went out about 11 o'clock that night on the 13th, and she bought a journal, and she scored, scored some heroin, and she came home, and she wrote what she did in the journal, and then when he found her, he, he woke up at about 3.30 in the morning, and she wasn't in bed. And so he looked all around the apartment because she was a night owl. So he thought maybe she was just playing around on her phone. And he walked in the bathroom. And he said, I saw my wife's legs dangling. And I I, I just, it, on the one hand, I, I couldn't believe she was gone. But on the, on the other hand, as I said, I, I knew. I told had spoken to my mother exactly two weeks to the day and said, we have to plan a funeral. You know, Amy, your story is very hard to hear. And I know our listeners um, would feel very sad to hear this this journey that you went through with your daughter, um, especially people who may be going through the same thing right now. Yeah. There's so many. Practically every single person I know has lost a sister, a brother, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a mother, or a father to this drug. And it's getting worse by the day. The detective from the Southington police told me that the reason that it took, uh, because it took several months to get the medical examiner's report, 
I was like, well, what? It, does it usually take this long? And, and he said, no. He said it's because every day five people at least are dying of heroin overdose and they don't have enough people in the medical examiner's office to do all of the work. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Amy Johnson. She's a Connecticut resident who lost her daughter in October after she struggled for some time with addiction. You said a lot of people are dying because of this drug. Um, and part of why you wanted to come into the studio and share this very personal story, um, you wanted to warn people of the signs you say you may have missed. Yes. But as a community, as we look at this um, problem, not only in Connecticut but nationwide, I mean, people use drugs as a coping mechanism. Right. I mean, now that you look back, you know, this past, um, you know, several months, what could have helped your daughter before she turned to substances? I don't, I don't know. Um, some people are just born. I, I believe that it's a gene and it's an inherited gene. And her father was an alcoholic. Um, and he's passed away. He, he died um, a couple of months before her son was born um, from alcohol. But um, I think what happened was she stumbled across the heroin and loved it. And I believe with addiction that that's what happens. Eventually you find your, they call it your drug of choice. <clears throat> And she found her drug of choice, mm -hmm. and she was just off and running. Um, but the signs that I missed, the biggest signs that I missed was when she was in the hospital having her daughter, she complained that the nurses were so inept because they couldn't find a vein. Looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, of course they couldn't find a vein because you're shooting heroin, and so your veins have collapsed. Then again, when her son was, her second, last child was born, same thing in the hospital. She's like, oh, these nurses. And again, I missed the sign. Um, so that's what, you know, that's what I want other parents and, and people to know, that there's there's so many little, they give you these little hints. Um, it's almost like they want you to know. You know, thinking back on it now, it's so clearly obvious. Mm -hmm. But it, it just wasn't then, you know. Um, call it denial. I don't know. I, I thought moving to Granby great school system. She can ride horses every day of her life. We're okay financially. We're safe. And that's what I want people to know, is that just because you live in Granby, Avon, Simsbury, Farmington, doesn't insulate you from becoming addicted to heroin or any other drug. For parents or siblings who are trying to help a loved one struggling with addiction, what do you want to tell them? It's really hard. It's hard because the addict has to hit bottom. And as parents, 
and siblings, we enable our children, especially here in the Farmington Valley, any town. We enable our children without even knowing it. Mom, can I have 20 bucks? Oh, I need to put some gas in my car. You know, you don't think about it. You just hear. Well, heroin now, you buy it in bundles. You get it for like $30 a bundle now. You know, if you're you're well-to-do, middle class, upper middle class, even not middle class, working class, whatever class you are, um, you have to say no when they ask you, oh, I need this or I need that and da-da-da. So there'd be, t- there'd be times where she'd ask me for a lot of money, you know, like $100 or $200, and, and I'd say no, and she'd get really angry at me. And as a parent, you know, you want to give in. Don't give in. She could have gone to detox 25 times, but since we were still supporting her, helping her, well, we, you know, she'd crack up a car, we'd get her a new one. We just kept enabling her without even realizing that that's what we were doing. So looking back, that's the, that's the, you know, one of the biggest messages that I want parents to know. Say no, no matter how mad they get at you. No matter what, they still love you. They're going to tell you they hate you, but they don't. They love you. And the best thing to do is to let them hit that bottom. Amy Johnson was a Granby resident. Her daughter, Jessica Peters, died in October after a battling addiction. Amy, thank you so much for coming in. It's not easy to talk about your, your loss, and, and we appreciate that, that you wanted to share it. Thank you so much. Today's show was produced by Jeff Tyson. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.